Welcome to the Honest Postnatal Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Dow, a postnatal exercise specialist and a mum of two. This is a space where we talk about postnatal recovery and how it feels emotionally and physically. This can be a challenging time for any mum, but I'm here to give you hope whilst keeping it honest. So wherever you are, take a deep breath, settle in, let's get started. On the podcast today, I have got Rachel with me and Rachel responded to a request I put out on Instagram regarding fourth degree tears and anyone who wanted to share their story. Um, Rachel is a mum of three little girls and she had a fourth degree tear and we're going to go into detail about what happened and everything in the postnatal period and recovery. So Rachel, thank you for joining me today. No problem. And I know we were just discussing, so we're recording this in the evening. Both of us are at home. I've sent my husband out with the two kids, but you've got all of your girls at home with you, but hopefully upstairs and asleep. Fingers crossed. (laughs) So we will see if we can hopefully get this nice and done quickly and also hopefully with no background noise. Um, So Rachel, I'm really conscious, obviously, your story, there's lots of different components to it. So where do you feel comfortable starting? Um, Well, I went through the questions that you sort of sent over to me um, and I have made some notes. So just, just wherever you want to start really is fine by me. Yeah. So it happened, the fourth degree tear was with your first birth, wasn't it? So should we maybe kind of go all the way back to going into labour and that first birth and if you're okay to to describe it as much as you feel comfortable with? Yeah. So um, I suppose really I like to point out that I had really, really hoped for quite a natural birth. I was quite chilled out and you know, I just kind of had the the opinion of, you know, whatever's meant to happen will happen. And in my mind, sort of the worst case scenario was, you know, that I might need a C section. Um so I went into labour after I had a sweep. Um I was already about one to two centimetres dilated. So, you know, the the stories you hear about sweeps being horrendously painful, mine was not like that at all <laughs> barely felt it and um just straight away I, I was having cramps and um I was really uncomfortable and I was and up... do you remember how many weeks you were Rachel at this point yeah so this was just a few days before I was due I was due on the 13th of February and this was on the 8th of February or no the 7th of February um so just five days before my due date and I felt ready um so yeah um I was up most of the night with really bad cramps but I didn't I didn't think it was labor I didn't think it was labor cramps because the cramps were all in my back and going down Mm -hmm. the backs of my legs and even the fronts of my legs and obviously when you you read about contractions that that's not the description at all so my husband went away to work as as normal in the morning because I was like nah not in labor and um, I'd been up all night. My mum came over in the morning and I was sort of in and out of the bath. My husband was on the phone to me. And eventually when I said, you know, I I need to go off the phone, like this pain's coming back and I can't speak to you. And he was like, mm, I'm coming home. So <laughs> bye. Good husband. He, he, he recognised the signals. <laughs> yeah. 
So I phoned the hospital, started timing things, even though it didn't feel like contractions, I still wasn't convinced. I just thought it was, I don't know, pain. Um, we phoned the hospital and I was at the hospital by about three o'clock in the afternoon. So about 24 hours after I'd had my sweep. Um, I was just on the triage ward. By the time we got to hospital, I was in a lot of pain. Um, I was already starting to struggle. Um, they suggested that I go and take a bath. There was like a bath in this strange little side room off the ward. And when I was in the bath, I I was just like, oh my god, I I cannot do this. I mm. this this is just far too much. And I sent Owen to go and get the midwife. There was nobody coming, and then they were doing handover because this was now coming close to the evening. So, kind of held off, held off, and I was like, I was kind of thinking to myself at this point, I'd had dihydrocodone and paracetamol, and at this point, I was thinking like, where, where is all the drugs? Where, where is the pain <laughs> relief? Like, I, I was like a bit confused because I was like, I don't think anyone else understands the pain that I am in right now. So anyway, we were taken through to the labour ward at about like half past seven, eight o'clock. I had a lovely, a really lovely midwife who was, of course, young and beautiful. Um, and she she was so nice. And I had I'd always said to Owen that I didn't want to have anything, any other pain relief other than gas and air. That was sort of my my plan. That was you your know, plan. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I sort of talked him through the risks as well. You know, I was like, you know, if I was to have a morphine injection, that might make baby sleepy when they come out and I really wanted to breastfeed. So, you know, I had quite idealistic views, I think. Um by nine o'clock at night I had asked for an epidural and they'd said, well, let's maybe just wait, have trimorphine first. Okay. So that's that's what I did. I tried um morphine. Um it was around about ten o'clock. That's the last time I really remember looking at the time, although Owen says that I asked what time it was constantly for the that's next sort of five hours. Okay. Looking back, it's actually it's because I couldn't see the clock. Like I couldn't I couldn't see. I was in so much pain, everything was really bloody, like I, I couldn't see properly. Um so yes, that I then had I think three or four failed epidurals between ten o'clock at night and three o'clock in the morning. Gosh, I and was, why were they failed in the sense that like they were doing it for you and then you just weren't feeling the pain relief or was it down one side? They couldn't sight it. So ah. I was in so much pain. I can't I can't even describe the level of pain that I was in other than I couldn't I couldn't see properly. I couldn't speak properly. I was completely naked. Like I was so hot and I needed nothing to be touching me. Um and the pains were all still it wasn't my stomach, it was all my lower back and down my legs and down the fronts of my legs. So it was keeping me still and timing the contractions. So they did put me on, I think it was called Remy Fentanyl. That okay, guy? yeah, maybe, yeah, I'm not sure to be honest. Or, I, I thought maybe you would be clued up and would know <laughs> whether I'm saying the right name or not. And um, it was like a button that I had to push, so I had to push that uh, okay. contraction coming on. Yeah. Um, 
but I couldn't time that with my contractions because my contractions were coming in like clusters. Yes. So my contractions would come like I would have like maybe two or three together, but then maybe nothing for a couple of minutes. So it was really, really difficult to time this right to give me the pain relief. And I had that and I had gas and air and I'd have the morphine and, and just nothing was making a difference. So at about three o'clock, uh, or after three, I wish I still had my notes. I did request my notes and I, I can't find them. Um, but it was about three o'clock in the morning, the on-call anaesthetist came and was able to get the, I think she did a, a spinal and then an epidural or, or something. She did something a bit different and she was able okay. to cite it. And um, that's what, oh, so sorry, something really important that I wanted mm. to, to get in here was, the in that time I was just, I was just I was absolutely beside myself like at, at one point I think I said you know I'm just gonna leave <laughs> you know nothing's nobody's doing anything for me I'm just going to leave and I remember my husband saying saying to the midwife like oh my god what, what did I do and she was like no <laughs> she, she's not getting off that bed <laughs> and the room was filled with people people kept coming in so okay. the charge midwife kept coming in people were in and out at one point Owen remembers the my midwife saying, "Do you know what? We need to clear the room. You know this. There's a there's too many people in here, and there was great fascination because I was in so much distress and I was in so much pain, and there was quite a lot of fascination with the fact that the baby, so, so Mara, wasn't in distress. It seemed uh, that okay. they were expecting." that the baby would be in distress if I was in so yeah. much distress and she, and she was completely fine. I even, I remember vividly several times begging just for a general anaesthetic, just, just to put me to sleep and just, you know, get get the baby out, just get the mm -hmm. baby out because I, I just, it just felt like there was no end point. I didn't, I couldn't even tell you what points of labour I was at during that time or how far dilated I was during that time it was just an absolute blur so anyway once I got the epidural cited and things calmed down a wee bit I the pain I could still feel my contractions but not as bad um, okay. and my left leg turned purple it turned really really purple gosh and my um, I'm not sure what the correct like medical terminology, but I had I think I had two cannulas in my arms, yep. and they came out. Um, right, okay. it, it was like my body was rejecting everything, and I even I used to have um, I used to have a dermal, you know, like a, a almost like a surface piercing type thing. My body yes. rejected that during labour as well. Okay, and this all kind of happened at the same time, which I've read into, you know. One of my fascinations is trying to figure out how fistulas happen and what the signs are during labour. Yeah. And the, the leg pain to me is a real sign that something wasn't right. That's fascinating. And okay. Mara, Mara was back to back during, during my labour. So, so that explains a lot of the back pain as well because yeah. back to back babies you just feel it yeah like a constant back pressure don't you okay that, yeah and it's so uncomfortable I think that's really important to to put because you're not getting any break you know and I think mm -hmm. when you learn about contractions and like you said at the beginning how you didn't think you were in labor because it wasn't the usual 
contractions that you read about on your tummy and that's the thing with back labor is it does just feel like one constant back pain and I think that's mm-hmm. what you're saying so it's yeah yeah so um at about half past six in the morning I remember my midwife saying right we're gonna examine you we're gonna have another look because obviously she was finished at seven and she was like you know if we're close she was like I'm just gonna stay Aww. and I was examined and no I was nine centimeters dilated but at okay. the debrief I learned that there was like a uh I think they described it as like a lip, lip like just yes yeah so the team of doctors came through and told me that what they were going to do was they were going to take me through to theatre where I they would have me attempt to push and then make the decision there and then whether forceps or a c-section would be the best best option so mm-hmm. I had literally signed my consent forms and sorry I'm turning my page I've made some notes that's okay I signed my consent forms and and could you shift- see your consent forms because I'm just really conscious that beforehand you said your eyesight was blurry and so at this point could you actually see or did someone explain it to you at that point I was lucid enough that I could see like I what the pain had calmed a lot so yeah okay. I could okay. um but yeah um then shift changed and a new team of doctors came around and examined me again okay and I remember thinking like why am I being examined again is that yeah. necessary like we've we've made the decision but you know I was just the doctors are here they they know what's best they know what to do and they all of a sudden the plan changed and they said no we're okay. going to leave you for a few hours oh, and wow. in big, a few hours big change in plan That's big huge change, change. Yeah. They said they were going to leave me for a few hours and then have me push on the ward. And then if the the pushing didn't didn't work, then I would be taken to theatre for either forceps or a C-section. So at that point, I was really, really upset. Um, I got really, really upset. And I remember the the midwife, I now had two two midwives because they they had changed as, as well. And one of them did say, look, I'll go and speak to the doctor and just explain. Because by this point, I'd been awake for like Mm. 48 hours. I was exhausted, even though, you know, the pain relief was working. Like I was still really uncomfortable. My leg was still really purple and really sore. It had been looked at and just sort of dismissed. Um, And the, the doctor that came back just said, you know, it's... It, nothing was explained to me at the time it was just sort of put no this is what we've decided and this is what's best so that's what we did so the pushing on the ward didn't wasn't successful and I think baby's heart rate started to drop a little so it was half past two in the afternoon we were well it was about two o'clock that we were through to theatre Mara was born at half past two so that's a big, okay. big jump from seven o'clock in the morning yeah. so she was a forceps delivery a forceps with Keelan's delivery so they had to okay. I think, yeah. rotate her um when we were going through to theatre as well I started to get really bad pain in my arms and my shoulders and my back and they said oh you, you're just anxious but I was in so much pain like it was like the pain from my leg 
that I was feeling through all the pain relief had, had just spread. Yeah. Um, so I had gas and air when, when Mara was born. Um, and yeah, that's my that's my birth story. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. It feels like it was obviously completely different from, I suppose, what you'd been expecting as well and what you'd you know what you thought you were going to go through and then obviously such an ordeal um and I feel like there was a lot where you potentially weren't listened to maybe you know when you were all of your what you were experiencing um you know trying to pass that on to the medical professionals um yeah when you say that you sorry sorry, go on no you go you go (laughs) I was just gonna say that looking back I just didn't want to or know how to advocate for myself I think and a lot of things I've learned I did have a a, quite a disastrous debrief of my birth but I learned a lot at the debrief and you know things that you know when I was re-examined at the back of seven in the morning you know in the space of that half an hour hour that the the lip was was gone so right. I was now able to push but it, it's just that thing of you know none of that was explained to me at the time it was just like oh this is what's happening this is what we're gonna do yeah and I think that's really common in in a lot of women's births especially first births is you I think you also feel like you you shouldn't have to advocate for yourself in a sense because you put your trust don't you in the hospital you know you're yeah. first time mum and so you do believe everything that they are saying and um, I think part of it is okay well they're telling me this and therefore they're the experts and and you're in so much pain and you're tired you know it's it's huge um, so I think it's it is hard to advocate for yourself I think it's one of the things that we learn afterwards with hindsight that yes you know oh we could have questioned more we could have asked for different outcomes but yeah hindsight is a wonderful thing and I think a lot of women feel like it's it's really difficult to advocate for yourself isn't it yeah Mm -hmm. and so in terms of you know you had the forceps and then obviously you had a fourth degree tear when did you discover this you know was any of this mentioned in surgery afterwards with baby kind of when did that all start to happen so when we were taken back through to the labor ward um sort of recovering now my mum and um, my husband were both with me we all remember this differently which is very interesting yeah I remember being told that I'd had a fourth degree tear so you know tore I I was kind of you know I had my baby in my arms I was so so tired but so happy so relieved and I was just like okay you know what is that and they sort of described it as you know you've tore from front to back yeah so I was like all right okay okay that's fine and then they told me that I had buttonhole tearing so yeah yeah fine and it's in my notes that they did say you know occasionally in the future this can break down and it can require further surgeries I don't remember this being said to me okay my mum is convinced that she remembers a colostomy being mentioned at that point but I think my husband doesn't remember that okay so interesting it's you but to be perfectly honest with you I I had my baby it had been such a long slog 
I wanted everyone to leave me alone. I just yeah. wanted to be with my baby and with my husband and, and I was so tired. That's really understandable, isn't it? And I think, yeah, you've just, you've had, and you, you know, you said that as well, didn't you? You had so many people coming in and out of the room. Mm-hmm. So you probably that desire to just be left alone. And again, I mm-hmm. think if, if you weren't prepared for a fourth degree tear, which, you know, not, not many women are, when they say like, oh, you've torn from front to back, you're just like, okay, fine. You know, it it takes a while to process all of that information as well, doesn't it? So, yeah, and I I definitely naively just thought that all tears could be healed, could be fixed, could be repaired. I didn't realize any of the long term stuff that can happen. And when did you start to realise, you know, what what a fourth degree term meant? Was it when you got home? Was it when you were still on the ward? What kind of, what were the signs for you? So as soon as everyone went home and I, it was just me and Mara on the ward, I, I the, the, my bleeding was obviously, I know bleeding is heavy for everyone, but, you know, they sort of said, you know, if there's any big clots, you know, let us know about that. And I was passing massive, massive clots. And I remember I was passing wind through my okay. vagina. And I remember like sitting thinking, oh, that's unusual. Nobody's mentioned this to me before. And I was like, oh, God, nobody talks about that. So then the next day, there was a a consultant that came round to see me and she was just chatting. I'm not really sure what what the purpose of her coming round to see me was, actually, but she was chatting away to me and she said, you know, you just need to be mindful that if you were to start passing passing stool through your vagina, then that's something you know that that's not right, and you need you need to speak to us about that. And I was like, oh well, I have been passing wind through through my vagina, and she's like, all oh, right, okay, so we need to examine you. So she took me through to examine me. She said that my stitches were all holding, so that was that. I was put back through to the ward. I had to stay in hospital until I'd had my first bowel movement. Okay. I was pumped full of lactulose. I was also on iron tablets. So, you know, the, the colour, if you've ever been on iron tablets, you will know the colour and consistency of that, that poo. I had my first bowel movement and was put home. And I think it was the... We'd been the second night I was home with Mara. I was lying in bed and I felt this. It's so difficult to explain, but I felt mm-hmm. grit. You know, it was like something gritty and I could feel it. Like, it's, it's so hard to describe the inside of your vagina, how that mm-hmm. how that feels. But it was, I, I could feel something and I went downstairs had another poo and it was coming through through my vagina and it was you know I had a lot of stitches I had you know a wound the 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 pain of it was just indescribable like that's why I try to describe the grittiness of, of the poo like that like sand being rubbed in a wound it was kind of what it felt like and it was like acid so it was, you know, looking back, I think 
I should have said to the consultant, okay, so why am I passing wind through my vagina if my stitches are holding? So that makes me think it was it, it had been missed and maybe not stitched. If she had just checked my stitches, was this somewhere else? I I don't know. I'll I'll never I'll never know. But it's these questions that I just I just didn't think to ask. You just trust the person that you're speaking to. You trust the doctor. Um, but it's not your job as well. You know, I think that's it, that breaks my heart when you say like I should have I should have asked her. Like it that's not your role. You know, your role yeah. is you're the patient, and their role is they are the medical professional. It's it's one thing for them to to check you and to miss it but she should have been questioning okay well this you know this mum is saying to me I'm passing wind through my vagina if she's telling me that even if on an inspection I can't find it I need to listen to this and I need to do further investigations you know so it's not your role like that really upsets me to you know that you're putting the blame on yourself it's it was her yeah. I'm not saying she was doing anything wrong, but again, it was her job to to, to work out what was going on, you know, for you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it's um, it was something that I brought up at my debrief, and I believe, you know, I, I did say, you know, can something be put in place so that this mm-hmm. doesn't happen again? Um, whether or not it has, I, I don't know, but that was something that I really wanted was, you know, even if I'd been examined before I was discharged again, or I don't know, just looked into a bit more, it could yeah. have maybe been different. And how did you move on then from, so when you're saying that situation happened, did you, I think when we spoke on the phone beforehand, you said you went back to A&E or you rang the hospital again and they told you to come in? So not quite. Um, Okay. So it was the middle of the night and I I sat with, you know, know, the leaflet that you get. Yes. And (laughs) it didn't, on that leaflet, there wasn't, didn't even say that passing stool through your vagina was possible it didn't say what to do if that happened it didn't have anything about buttonhole tearing I was trying to sort of google things and nothing was coming up and so I just waited I waited until the GP surgery opened and I phoned the GP surgery and the person I spoke to on the phone was like oh I'm gonna put you through to the the mid the, the midwife team and they were like you need to go back to hospital and I was devastated. I didn't I didn't obviously want to go back, but you know, to have sat all night, you know, by myself because I didn't want to wake my husband and just sitting going, what is what is happening? What what is happening and what am I supposed to do? You know, it didn't say, you know, phone the ward or, you know, yeah. just just nothing. So I went back to the hospital. Um I saw a really lovely consultant I've seen really quickly and examined and, and straight away she she found the, the fistula, the rectal vaginal fistula. And oh, this is one of these moments that I replay in my head all the time because when she said, Yeah, I found it I was like, Oh thank God And I think I actually said something along those lines. And she did look at me and she was like, why, why have you had that reaction? I was just like, I'm just so glad, like I, 
I didn't want somebody to say it was all in my head yeah, again. So she sat me down and explained it. And I mean, stupidly, I had left Mara and Owen in the visitor's room and had went through by myself and she explained what she was going to do next was contact uh, the on-call person from Gynae and the on-call person from general surgery because they would likely uh, want to have a look at me together because because I was five days postpartum at this point there was a 50-50 chance that I would need a colostomy okay pardon me sorry it's all right so it was a 50-50 chance and she said that they might they she she sort of said you know you'll need to sign consent forms before you go in the colostomy would just be temporary and but you know it might not happen so I went out and I told Owen. Owen had no idea what a colostomy was, and he he was he was so amazing because he was just you know so yeah it's fine yeah it's fine we'll 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 do it. Whereas I was just thinking uh, a a bag of poo. You know I've just had a baby, and I'm going to have a bag of poo, and it, it, it yeah. And I went and I phoned my mum. And in the time it took me to phone my mum and go back to the visitor's room, the consultant came back and said, oh, actually, you're not an emergency. You're not classed as an emergency. So we're going to have to send you home. Because she'd said to me when we were in the little room after examining me, she said, you know, get in touch with somebody, get them to pack a bag for you. You're going to be kept in. And she was like, you're... And she was like, I'm so sorry. She, you know, she was so apologetic and she was like, I'm going to go and try again. And that that was that. So I was sent home and yeah, I was sent home knowing that I was just, I, I was sent home pooing out of my fluff, which is just, it was something that until that, until that happened to me, I didn't know it was possible. I didn't know it could happen. It was so dehumanizing and it felt so degrading and that night was my mum's birthday that day and we had everyone over for a Chinese and I needed to go to the toilet and I then had to I remember just thinking I I, I don't know what to do this was it just felt like the poo was everywhere all in my fluff all in everywhere all in my wounds and I just got into the bath and I was sitting in the bath with the towel and I could hear Mara crying in the living room because I was breastfeeding. No one else could settle her. I couldn't take her into the bath with me because the bath was full of poo and, you know, everything. And I was, you know, everything, just that that moment, I, I just thought, how can this not be urgent enough? So, so Yeah. It's just, it's heartbreaking to hear that you've had to live through that and that for some reason they didn't classify that as urgent. Um, And to let you go home with that as well, you know, whether or not they'd classified it as urgent, even to have kept you in, somehow to have kept you in the hospital, to have cared enough. And it's, 
again it's just heartbreaking and to think as well you know women go through this and then you are looking after a baby as well so it's not even just like this is going on but you can focus on you and you can be in the bath and do all of that you've got another human who is relying on you um and I think as a mum you know I can really resonate with that feeling of like hearing your baby cry when you're in the bathroom you know and you're in a situation like that it must I just I don't know how you got through it to be honest Rachel like I don't know how you kept going you just do but then you know you'll say that to me but then I maybe hear your story or hear someone else's story and say exactly the same you just do somehow don't you yeah but it's so much to contend with isn't it yeah and what was the what was the next step then like when did they call you back in did you have to push did they remember to call you back in so I that was on the that would have been on the Tuesday or the Wednesday and I got in touch with I think I got in touch with the GP because of course you know obviously then my mum is telling other members of the family and everyone's horrified everyone's so shocked nobody's heard of this before oh my goodness you're not an emergency oh my goodness you should be doing this or you should be doing this or oh my goodness, you know, you, you need to just keep chasing them. And I, I I wasn't really that type of person. I am now, but I wasn't <laughs> really that type of person. And I phoned the GP and they wouldn't see me. It was an awful phone call. They wouldn't see me, but they did make an appointment for the following day. So okay. I went to this appointment and it was a really lovely doctor she was so kind but she did say you know I had to google this before you came in she said this is something she said I'll be open with you I don't have any experience of this it's not something I had heard of before and she tried to push that I was an emergency that I was you know high risk of infection with you know feces going into my, my wounds she started me on a course of antibiotics because she was like do you know what I just think that that that's wise given what's happening and eventually I because I I had another GP appointment and eventually I said look just I just want somebody to see me um because I believe if I'm remembering it correctly that there wasn't a gynecologist with experience in Aberdeen that could see me so I was like just just have anybody see me and by this point I knew that the colostomy was a certainty and I was like just 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 have me saying I, I I want that now I don't need it to be done at the same time so sorry so the hospital after you went in the hospital never came back to you I don't think they did I really don't <gasps> think they did okay um I like I say I, I did have my notes but I I I've totally misplaced them um but it was there was a lot of chasing the GP and chasing the midwife. Like the midwife did a lot of chasing for me as well. So I had okay. an appointment just with a general surgeon who, again, wasn't the the general surgeon that would usually have seen someone with an injury like mine. And it was strange begging for 
pardon me, a, a, a surgery that I didn't want to have, but I just yeah. needed it to stop. I just needed I, I, I needed something to be a little bit better because the symptoms were just horrific. When you needed someone to care for you, I mean, I just, I'm flabbergasted that like this wasn't a priority and you weren't followed up and how you were expected to just carry on and again, look after a new baby, you know, that no one was dealing with this. Like, I think it's just, it's appalling, yeah. you know, it's really appalling. So Mara was just just um just under three weeks old when I had my surgery for my colostomy. So I think I was seen finally on like when she was about two weeks old and had my surgery the following week. That was awful. That was really awful. Um but I did get to take by that point. I'd switched from my midwife to my health visitor. My health visitor was just very, very straight talking. And, she, you know, she was just, no, because I was terrified that I wasn't going to be able to take my baby. I wasn't going to be able to take Mara into hospital with me. And she's like, no, absolutely not. She will be going with you. You know, this is what's going to be happening. And she, she was fab. So I went in to have my surgery. Owen had a little camp bed in the room for him to stay with me. Mara was in the little cot and I had my had my first surgery to form a loop colostomy. And um the following month, so it was the April that I was seen by Gyne and I had an examination under anaesthetic to have a look at the, the fistula properly. And they decided that with having the colostomy, they, the the rectovaginal fistula had started to heal, so that so it would be best not to do a repair and just to leave it to see how it healed on its own. Okay. And how did you feel about that? Like, what once you were told, did you feel like you wanted more surgery, or were you happy to wait and see if it would heal by itself? I just wanted to be fixed. So when I woke up and the consultant told me that, I was upset because I just wanted a resolution. I just wanted to wake up and think, all right, the repair's done. And everything had sort of been explained, you know, that I would maybe have a colostomy for six months to a year. So my thought process was, well, if we're leaving this to wait and see, then I'm going to have the colostomy for longer. And as it was with a loop colostomy, it's not common, but it does happen that you can still have bowel movements okay. out of your 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 bum. So um, I then started having quite a lot of bowel movements from my bum. So this was about 50-50, I would say my output was. Okay. So obviously then my symptoms of the, the rectal vaginal fistula came back. But again, it was this a lot a lot of pushing with, you know, going to the GP and saying this is happening. And I, I was lucky I had such a wonderful GP that sort of took me on um, that you know, really advocated for me. And I think eventually did actually say, just get a sample of what it is that's coming out and we will test it 
and say this, this is this is feces and not because they kept saying oh it'll just be mucus it'll just be mucus and I was like no it's it's poo it's definitely poo and um, so because of that I did then have the repair in the of the rectal vaginal fistula done in the July okay and I was in a I had a lot of pain after that operation that was quite well felt like quite quite a big one but and again this is with hindsight looking back I don't know why I didn't push for something to be done about the colostomy because it was just a couple of days after the surgery that I had a bowel movement that in part came out my bum and I thought oh that that's it it's failed the surgery's failed um but in the December I did have another surgery where the colostomy was changed from a loop colostomy to an end colostomy and another repair was attempted so and that repair also failed but at least it had a better better chance of working and I wasn't having the the same symptoms as I was before and this was all within like one year of being postnatal Mm -hmm. yeah so Mara was born in February and the last surgery I had was in the December okay and how did this affect you all postnatally like mentally like how was your mental health going through this because again I just can't imagine listening to all of this feeling like you weren't supported listened to given the right information and you know looking after a baby like how was this affecting you mentally it was so difficult it was really really difficult I I didn't have postnatal depression which I think everyone was amazed at I think everyone expected I'm amazed at yeah I don't know how you (laughs) weren't on the floor like (laughs) it was a really traumatic birth and I think that took me or maybe I'm still processing it that took me a long time I had a lot of problems with not sleeping Mara Mm -hmm. was a great sleeper Mara was just the most chilled baby ever and she slept but I did not I had quite a lot of nightmares quite a lot of flashbacks I struggled quite a lot with different things um you know around pregnancy or you know or even just like things that would remind me about mm-hmm. remind me of being pregnant or remind me of being in labor it felt like so probably elements of ptsd it sounds like because the flashbacks are not sleeping the triggers so i was diagnosed with ptsd when my was about six months old mm-hmm. um but i wasn't seen by the local perinatal mental health team because there, there, there just wasn't enough support to go around. There was no local peer support groups because I did lots of late night googling trying to find either find people like me or find some kind of support. Um, so I wasn't actually seen by psychology until Mara was about 18 months old. Okay. Uh, I did find the a lot of information through the birth trauma association they had a lot of information there but it's it's worth saying that social media was quite different back then like I did eventually find a closed group on Facebook for 
women with rectal vaginal fistulas but that took a lot of searching for um my mental health took another hit when I had baby number two I think in my head I had thought having another baby would heal having a good birth experience would heal the first one and I was just so and I had this sort of glow of oh look at Rachel how well is she doing oh Rachel Rachel did so well she's coped so well with all of this and I had Enley and within about the the first 24 hours of having Enley I just was not myself at all it just it was just like a, a cloud or a storm um and when I went to see the GP a couple of weeks later or maybe a couple of months later he did take us he sort of sat back and went oh I think we dropped the ball here I think we should have expected this and it fit it did feel like then everything just hit me at once like the the everything with Mara everything just washed over me I'm so sorry I've just noticed we've been on we've been chatting for ages and we're not done your questions I'm so sorry no. <laughs> Rachel don't apologize I want you to tell your story and I really want to give you the space to tell you your story you know as feels right for you so don't worry about the questions at all the questions were just there to to help us with the podcast you know but you tell your story and you're I think anyone listening you know the way well I think anyone listening first off will just think you are absolutely incredible um to keep going the fact that you've gone on to have more children I know you've gone on to have another two um and just everything that you've gone through and and even just quickly going back to the bit where you said you know you were having to google you were looking for support groups I mean it feels like it should be so basic that you would experience a fourth degree tear you know this buttonhole tear the 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 hospital should be coming to you saying well gosh let's get you you know booked in with a counsellor and a psychologist and let's get you a support group you know the fact that none of this was forthcoming and I understand it's, you know, the NHS and, but it, it's really heartbreaking that you've gone through all of this and you've had to fight for yourself the whole time and keep advocating and having more surgery. Um, so I'm not surprised it hit you second time around. I think the fact that, and again, most people listening will think, God, you know, how you even got pregnant and, you know, managed to go through the pregnancy again and all of that without being triggered is incredible. So you just tell your story how it is. Thank you. Um, it, it it was really difficult, really, really difficult, because I I had this overwhelming feeling, and I, and I still have this feeling now, even when it comes to any appointments I have now, just kind of that nobody quite knows what to do with me. That was that was a really big feeling that I had at the time, and I sensed quite a lot of maybe fear and maybe just wanting to kind of brush me under the carpet rather than just head on deal with me and my injury and my subsequent issues and just help me it's like instead of it's it's I suppose it's the whole duty of candor thing isn't it it's, it's apologizing and taking ownership and you know fix. all I've ever wanted is just to be fixed um 
yeah um yeah that that that's really all all I've wanted and I've I don't know how to sort of explain what I'm trying what I'm thinking so just ask me another question and move on (laughs) I think no I think it's really I think it's really obvious what you're saying is that you you didn't want to be broken in the first place and then you wanted to be fixed by the people you've put your trust in and that is what should happen you know at the end of the day if we give birth and these issues do happen then you expect to get the help to get the resources to get the support and to be fixed to a degree and not to have to fight for it yourself or not to have to push for the appointments or you know push to be seen and push to be heard so I think it's and again I think we all want to be fixed in some sense don't we you know when these injuries happen that's that's obviously what you want and again you're a mum you're looking after you know your kids you want to get on with stuff so you you want answers and you want solutions and that's completely right if or you know why would you not yeah I was just wanted to ask I think people will be wondering kind of where you are now so I know you then had so I'm gonna guess that you definitely had two c-sections afterwards yeah so that that was one of the first things they said about my injury was you know a natural birth uh, wouldn't be recommended or possibly not possible um I I there was there was like mixed feelings like feelings of relief about that like I I knew that before going into the pregnancy and I think that's why I I was part of the reason I was so keen to have more because I knew that I wasn't going to have to go through a labour again or go through that experience again Uh, so but at the same time I was devastated that I wasn't going to have you know the natural birth that's really uh, you know I don't want to say glamorized but you know kind of glamorized in a way and I struggle with feeling sort of particularly jealous of uh, you know the people that have the lovely home births or the water births and also a lot of fear um, you know when my friends have been pregnant I've just had this intense fear for them because I I, I just want to sit them down and say do you not realize what can go wrong do you not realize what what could happen here so yeah sorry I can't even remember what question you asked me there (laughs) I was just I was literally just sat listening thinking I completely understand and I think there's a few things to unpack from that the first thing is when we don't get the the natural birth that we we desired and we think we kind of can have it is a grieving process you know because something is taken away from you that you you thought you were going to get and again because in society we don't talk enough about what can go wrong like you're saying the trauma and the shock it, it is a grieving process and then when you went on to say about you know like the envy and the jealousy again I get that because you you do you hear of these wonderful births and obviously that's what we all wanted to happen and that's completely normal emotion to have and your birth and your injury and your trauma is 
a lot more than most people would have to contend with. So it's very normal to have feelings of jealousy. And I actually think it's really brave of you to admit having those feelings. But I think it's completely normal to say that. And then when you were talking about, you know, the fear for your pregnant friends, again, it's it's almost like witnessing something like, you know, like being in a war zone and then seeing someone else going into a war zone. Like, it, obviously, you love them and you want to protect them. So you want to say, like, this could happen. So I think all of your, you know, your feelings are just completely completely normal and understandable um but i think you're really brave to to voice all of those feelings as well one of your questions that i wanted to to talk about was Mm. you one of your questions was around you know did my birth injury affect my bonding with mara yeah and it's it's so important for me to say like i i do think i'm an exception not the rule uh, that it didn't affect my bonding with Mara at all I just as soon as I saw her I just had this feeling like oh we've been through something together and just I just felt like we had been through it and felt really um I don't know how to describe it just like I knew her is is the only way I can kind of put it but I did feel a lot of grief for the things that I felt I had missed out on. You know, I'd really, I had all these plans of doing skin to skin in the bath. And like I was saying earlier, you know, that, that wasn't possible. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had wanted to breastfeed, which I did. And, but then the choice to give her her first bottle was taken away from me in the way that that had to be done while I had my first surgery when she was so little. And then, you know, the way that you sort of react to those things further down the line. So then Mara just, you know, she would absolutely not get a bottle unless I was having a surgery. You know, all these little things. And I think there was a lot of grief for that, you know, not being able to go to baby classes. Yeah. Because I felt like by the time I was sort of well enough to go to baby classes, I felt like, oh, our mum's going to say like, oh, well, why, why is she only here now? And, you know, these silly things that probably wouldn't have happened. but in with everything else going on it, it feels huge um I think yeah and again it's a grieving process and I can I you know I had a third degree tear and I didn't go through half of what you went through but I can I couldn't get to baby classes for a long time and I had exactly the same feeling I thought people would be judging me like why is she only here now and, yeah and then I was petrified someone would ask me about the birth, you know, and I wouldn't be able to talk and I'd burst into tears. And so I think, and again, you know, I just think it's so upsetting because we all have these wonderful ideas about having skin to skin, having the golden hour, having, you know, all of these moments. And again, when they're taken away from you, it's just these levels of grief um, mm-hmm. that I can think. But the fact that you, it didn't affect your bonding is wonderful and that's something to be really treasured um did it affect the bonding then with your second baby because I know you said then it it felt like when you had your second one um it hit you or was that just more Um, like a separate kind of no that that was kind of separate um that was kind of separate and did you get help that time around Yes, I I did. Uh, Good. Thing, okay. Things were <laughs> finally. 
so things were very very bad and it took me quite a while to admit how 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 bad things were I think because there was sort of this oh isn't Rachel amazing from the first time round to actually admit that I was falling apart it was very difficult but in so Enley was born there's two years between each of my girls and Enley was born in 2019 August 2019 and January 2020 I saw advertised on Facebook uh, um, uh, a group for mums uh, with mental health issues so it was it's called Latham and I went to the first ever meeting I saw there was a segment on like our local STV news okay. and the two the two founders of Latinum, one of them uh, suffered postnatal depression and a lot of what she said I felt I could relate to after having Enley. And then the other founder, Jill, she had a traumatic birth with her first and she had a birth injury and there was just so much of what she said. I felt I could relate to and it was the most welcoming experience ever and they they've obviously the the group has grown a lot since since then but it, it they've just done amazing amazing things and just having that peer support is really nice and feeling that you're not alone and being able mm-hmm. to say having that space to talk about things that you can't talk about you know with everybody you know about you know my bag leaking or you know pain or flashbacks or you know struggling with your child's birthday because that's your anniversary of your birth trauma you know all these things yeah. that are a little bit taboo that other people don't understand and I, th- I, th- I think that that's what everybody needs. You found your tribe basically you found your group of women who completely understood mm-hmm. you didn't judge could empathize yeah. with you in that I mean yeah that's huge it makes all of us feel better when you find those people that you can talk to that understand it's I think it's quite a big relief isn't it as well yeah um I'm getting conscious that I've taken up a lot of your time and your girls are upstairs um I think probably everyone that's listening would want to know just where you are now, you know, so where you are in terms of any surgeries, what kind of, um, where your recovery is. So if you're happy, maybe just to talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I, when Mara was about 18 months old, so about six months or so after my, my last surgery that I spoke about earlier, I was examined and it was confirmed that the, the rectal vaginal fistula is still active. It hasn't, the repair hadn't worked. At that point, because I'd experienced so much pain following the two surgeries that I'd had, they said that it wouldn't be recommended to have another surgery. And at that point, I was I was done with surgeries for a while anyway. Mara was 18 months old. I had, oh, I just dreamt of having two under two. Having two under two was just my my absolute dream. But, you know, there, there was barriers when it came to sex and, and actually conceiving another baby. And I just wanted to focus on that. So I had Enley. Um, I fell pregnant with her a couple of months after that appointment. I was seen again when I was uh, pregnant with Enley 
but obviously they couldn't examine me or anything. So I was just sort of put on hold to come back when I was done having having children. So I then got my two under two uh, by a little bit of a surprise. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so I had Imogen 2021 okay. and uh, I had an appointment just the start of 2022 so with with my two surgeons so uh, a general surgeon and a gynecologist so by that point I'd been seen by a really wonderful psychiatrist who'd really helped me with with a lot of a, a lot of stuff and I went into the appointment just asking a lot more questions I think and advocating for myself a lot better so I was very firm that I did not want to be examined because that's something that I find quite traumatic and it was actually news to me to learn that I didn't have to be examined while I was awake. I could say, no, it, it's, it's too much for me and have that done under anaesthetic. So I was referred to have an MRI scan and I've had that and I've been referred to have uh, an examination under anaesthetic so I'm still waiting for that I still have my colostomy I think I probably always will even if I was to have another surgery I don't know if I would ever be able to to risk having the colostomy reversed and then just living in fear of this happening again the I have quite a big uh hernia I've got a uh, parastomal hernia so I'm just kind of waiting it's just waiting now to, for the examination and to sort of decide what happens next because if I would like to do another surgery on the rectal vaginal fistula then they would probably do a repair of the hernia at the same time or you know different decisions affect different things and I'm quite hopeful that I'm I'm hopeful that maybe one day I can be fixed. I asked at my last appointment, you know, what advances have there been? Yeah. Since 2017, there have been none. But um, I did sort of say, you know, I would be happy to try something that's maybe a bit more experimental. I want I said, you know, I'm not a doctor, but I sort of said all the things that you're a bit scared to say. I was like, you know, I'm happy to to try something different. It seems silly going in and doing the same thing. So I think they are going to get a plastic surgeon involved to see okay. if there's something that they could potentially do. Um, my big fear is having another surgery and the, and the pain um I experienced the first time but it's it's just all decisions that I have to make at some point I would love to so with a colostomy you still pass mucus from your bum some people pass this you know quite irregularly I have phases where it's every day and phases where it's not so much but obviously that comes through my vagina and that's still a form of fecal fluid so it's still you know I feel like I get thrush quite a lot I feel like there are still symptoms even though 
at my last appointment, they said, you know, at least, you know, you're, you you don't have the same symptoms you did have. I was like, I still have symptoms. So it's, if I can get to a place where that's, that's all sorted, I'll be happy. And I think that's fair enough, isn't it? You know, you want to be, you want to be fixed. You want to be back to, to you and to, to where you started. And I think that's a completely normal and justifiable desire that you want you know and I think you're doing an amazing job pushing for that and to you know to to be willing to try something new and I really hope that if you do have that appointment with the plastic surgeon as well something comes out of it um and how is just day-to-day life then with a colostomy bag and three little girls I mean how is motherhood um it has its really awful moments. It has its really, really awful moments. I, I don't want to be really down about it, but it is pretty rubbish sometimes. There are things... I I do find my colostomy quite difficult to, to sort of deal with. Um, I've seen other, other people talking about before they get in their colostomy doing things like, you know, work with the stoma nurse and naming their stoma um I didn't have any of that because it was it was quite last minute and there were a lot of things in the beginning like I wasn't given a like a a card to say that you need to use the toilet urgently so I was refused access to disabled toilets on like two occasions um and that was really difficult there was things like today I was at swimming lessons with my little one and I needed to change my bag before going into the pool uh, and the disabled toilet in, in the swimming is you know you know what swimming changing rooms are like they're never the cleanest yep. so I went into the disabled one and it, it was fine for me but there was no like baby changer so I was like there's nowhere to lie you down to change your nappy and get get you all sorted I I I make a lot of jokes about it. Like I am very open with about the fact that I have a colostomy because I might poo myself, <laughs> and <laughs> it's easier that people know that that's a possibility. You know, I'm very open at work. Um, you know that I might need to go home and change my clothes. Like it has leaked at work. Um, I never thought I would say the sentence that I had pooped on my child. <laughs> but that happened as well. Um, you know, we were lying in bed and I was like, oh, Mara, have you done a poo, darling? <laughs> and she said, she, she's like shaking her head and one's like, oh, I can smell poo too. And I looked down and I was like, oh my God, it's me. <laughs> you know, sometimes you feel it coming, sometimes you don't. Um, being able to laugh about it, that yes. keeps you going and, you know, make jokes about it. I think for a lot of people, isn't it, that the the trauma and the darkness of the situation, when you get through it and you kind of get to the other side, that laughter, I think for a lot of people, is, is a way to get through it, isn't it? And I think um, I spoke about this in one of the other podcasts, and I must find the quote, but there is something about when you talk about something so openly and so honestly, like you're saying, it takes the shame away and it takes the stigma um and so I think you being able to talk to your work colleagues and and to be open 
it, it helps everyone in a sense, you know, it's helping you, but it's also helping other people to deal with it if it happens. Um, and I think the fact that you've come on and you've shared your story so eloquently, um, I think you would have helped so many women, you know, unbelievably to have come on and to share so openly. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and giving me the the space to share my story. I'm sorry. I feel like I haven't told it very well at points, but it has been quite hard. I don't, it's not something I talk about a lot. I don't talk about my labour a lot, but I just, it's so important to me because I, I felt so, so alone. I felt so alone and I you know, I was like searching hashtags on Instagram, like searching rectal vaginal fistula. I was just searching for people like me. So I really hope that this does reach somebody and somebody can relate to some of the things I've said. I don't know if I'm very hopeful, but I think as well that being able to tell my story and be able to say, you know, this isn't a horror story. This is this is what happened to me and it could happen to other people and I think that it's so important to tell stories so that people are aware of birth injuries you know different degrees of tearing that people are sort of able to educate themselves because I I I wasn't aware and yeah I have been told you know oh don't 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 say that don't 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 tell your story oh no you'll put them off no I won't I won't. I do think that maybe had I known more before being in labour and, you know, listened to my body more, things might have been even slightly different. And I think all of us with a birth injury, all of us say, I wish I'd have known. You know, that's the thing that I hear all the time. So I think, yes, you know, we have to be careful who we share our story with are they willing to listen you know but Mm -hmm. I very much feel the same as you like we have a right to tell our story and actually that story can help people come to terms with that these things can happen and I think knowing that is actually power because again then you can advocate for yourself and the trauma isn't so huge like so much of a shock if it does happen to you because you had some kind of awareness that this could happen and I actually think on the flip side as well like if there's any medical professionals listening to this or any midwives like it's so important that the story is told of what can happen and what effect it can have when you have a fourth degree tear when you have a birth injury because I think it can very much be seen as just you know a note on a piece of paper fourth degree tear you know buttonhole tear and that's it and I think these stories have to be told but you told it beautifully and it's your story you know so your story is the way you tell it um I just want to ask you that are you willing if people you know I know you're very much you're happy to share it so if if anyone gets in contact with me maybe through the podcast and they would like to reach out to you are you happy for people to do that yeah of course I'm I'm totally fine with that and my Instagram is public at the moment um sometimes I share bits and pieces of my story sometimes I don't um but if you scroll back you'll find some bits and pieces as well okay so I'll put that on the show notes as well um and then if anyone wants to get in touch with you they can do um but thank you again Rachel so much for sharing your story it really is 
it's, it's an honor like a real honor just to have sat here and to have listened to you um yeah thank you so much thank you okay i'll leave you for your little girls now okay bye thanks rachel If you've enjoyed listening to the Honest Postnatal Podcast today, please leave a review and hit the subscribe button. This way we can reach more women with honest postnatal stories. And if you'd like to message me, you can find me on Instagram at honestyogaldn.com.